1: Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com/slash cashback debit. Discover Bank
0: member FDIC.
1: The following podcast is a Dear Media production.
0: Welcome to Breaking
1: Beauty, the podcast all about the breakthrough people, products, and moments in beauty. We're your hosts, Jill Dunn and Carlene Higgins. Welcome back to Breaking Beauty Podcast, friends. I'm your co-host, Carlene Higgins.
0: Hey, Carlene. And I'm your co-host, Jill Dunn. And is it just me or why do I feel like after the year 2020, my under-eye bags need their own passport at this point? Like, (laughs) am I alone? I'm sure Uh, some of our listeners can relate.
1: (laughs) I don't think so. You know lack of sleep, wearing a mask. I think there's more attention than ever on people wanting their eye area to look fresh
0: right now. Well, that brings us to today's topic. Um, You might have caught it, but in last week's episode, in episode 144, we chatted with a board-certified dermatologist, Dr. Mamina Taragano, all about non-invasive ways to treat dark circles, under eye bags, and puffiness. And go back and listen to that if you haven't had a chance yet. But really, that was just one part of this conversation that we wanted to have, right, Carlene?
1: That's right. This week, we're continuing our exploration about all of the options to find out where do eye creams and derm treatments stop and plastic surgery begins. For myself, as someone who's had hooded eyelids all of my life with some asymmetry, I personally have always wondered, like, what's the tipping point where you might choose to go under the knife? And what's just plain unrealistic to expect out of an eye cream? You know what I mean?
0: Absolutely. And that's why today we're chatting with Dr. Lara Devgan. And she's definitely the right person to ask. She is booked and she is busy. Dr. Devgan is a leading board-certified cosmetic and reconstructive surgeon based in Manhattan. She also has her own skincare line. She has a podcast called Beauty Bosses, and she's a mom of six. Holy,
1: I don't know how she gets it done. Dr. Devgan is... Also blown up on Instagram as well. She has nearly 400,000 followers, and Vogue Singapore recently dubbed her one of the top seven medical influencers to follow right now. And I think that's because her feed really allows you to take a peek behind those procedures you might be curious about.
0: And I'm so here for the before and the afters. They are incredible.
1: Oh, you know, I'm always DMing you. I'm just like, is this real? This person looks 10 years younger, like life changing. (laughs) but not only is she a fantastic surgeon she's just so good at explaining things in a way that you'll understand i she honestly blew my socks off in this in this interview i took so much away. I understand so much more. You guys are going to love her.
0: So in today's episode, we're going to cover some of those same eye concerns that we covered in last week's episode, this time from a cosmetic surgeon's perspective. So she's going to walk us through what to expect when it comes to costs, downtime, who's the best candidate, along with some popular procedures she's saying that you really might want to think twice about.
1: That's right. But first, we're going to go deep on the famous fox eye trend seen on a certain group of Hollywood models. And we'll chat about judginess when it comes to plastic surgery, too. Here she is, Dr. Laura Devgan. Oh oh and now a message from one of today's show partners, Apostrophe. Apostrophe. Apostrophe is a prescription skincare company that connects you with a dermatologist online who can prescribe you products to meet your skincare goals. For me, that means fading out the sunblotch I've developed on my left cheek and fading some of the multiple lines forming around my eyes now that I'm in my early 40s. So let me tell you about my experience on their site. I filled out the online questionnaire going through my skin concerns and medical history. It was really quick. I uploaded a few makeup-free selfies, and within 24 hours, I was sent a customized treatment plan from a board-certified dermatologist, which means I trust what they have to say. I was prescribed a 0.18% tretinoin, custom blended with niacinamide, And I love that my personalized plan talked to me about what I should do if I started getting dry because I do have sensitive skin. So that happened and I referred back to it. Now I've dialed back using it twice a week. And after several weeks, I'm really starting to see that my skin texture is improving. It's looking more refined. And that makes sense because it is a prescription strength retinol. Usually that kind of prescription is kind of a pain to get, especially in the middle of a pandemic. So I think that you guys are going to love that you don't have to go anywhere and it's delivered straight to your door anywhere across the U.S. The packaging is also really cute. It's in an airless pump. So all of those ingredients stay really potent. This whole concept just really meets the moment. Get your first visit with a board-certified dermatologist on apostrophe.com for free with the code BEAUTY. This code is only available to Breaking Beauty listeners, and you won't find it anywhere. Use code BEAUTY at signup and get the visit for free. To get started, go to apostrophe.com and click begin visit. We'll link to this offer on our blog and in our show notes. And now back to the show. So we wanted to talk to you about taking that next step, like where those dermatological treatments end, and where your procedures begin. So maybe you could tell us what is the tipping point between fillers and lasers and going under the knife when it comes to eye concerns.
2: I think what we've figured out really well in medical aesthetics and plastic surgery is how to soften hollowing and how to smooth wrinkles. Mm -hmm. So tear trough augmentation, Botox, eye creams, all of that stuff, lasers can be in the first category. But once you start to have two stigmata of aging around the eyes, and those are puffiness or herniation of the fat pads and excess skin, once those two concerns pop up, then you really graduate into more of a surgical
0: category. Okay. That's helpful. Makes sense. And typically what age do you think that you start seeing people come in with that double whammy?
2: <laughs> it really depends so much on your genetics and your environmental impact on your tissues more than mm-hmm. your chronological age. So if I, okay. I I've had blepharoplasty surgery patients who have ranged in age from their 20s to their 80s. Um, I would say an average answer for, you know, a typical American adult would be, late thirties, early forties, the eye skin is the thinnest on the body. And so the periorbital tissue is going to start to reveal your age a little bit faster than the other parts of your body. And that's a plastic surgeons party trick where you can guess somebody's age by looking at the tissues around their eyes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And um, I'm so curious this year because, you know, everybody's been wearing masks and I had an email land in my inbox And it was talking about how there's been an uptick in above-the-mask procedures this year because of that. And I was like, is this hype or is this real? Have you been seeing that?
2: I think it's real. I have seen this in my own practice. So I'm a board-certified plastic surgeon, so I do everything. I face breast, body, all types of concerns. But I've seen a specific and marked uptick in two areas post-COVID, and those are procedures above the mask. So everything from temporal brow lift, eyelid surgery, suture suspension, thread lifting for brow shaping and injectables around the eyes. But I've also seen an uptick in procedures that can be covered by the mask. So that's also interesting stuff like neck lift and lip
0: lift. Mm-hmm, right. Okay. So what's the number one eye concern or eye look that are people are after when they come to see you? I think
2: the answer to that question is not necessarily what you would expect. The number one thing that I'm hearing from my patients is that they want to look the same but better. So it's less about chasing a trend like the cat eye look that's going around in some circles. And it's more about maintaining the feeling of facial identity, but cleaning up the tissue and skin and wrinkles and things like that around the eye area. And I think the eyes are a really unique feature relative to other features of the face, because so much of what we perceive as someone's identity is buried in the tissues of the eyes and the eye area. So it's a really delicate area where even one millimeter of difference can make a significant impact.
1: Mm. Absolutely. And, you know, you alluded to that cat eye trend. I think you're yeah. probably talking about the fox eye yes. look that Bella yeah. Hadid has and Kendall Jenner. What do you make about this kind of trend when it comes to cosmetic surgery or these types of procedures? I get a little concerned about this like one look suits all. And I'm curious what, what your take is.
2: I totally agree with you. And I think that Trends are best suited for things that are easily changeable and that's Mm -hmm. stuff like, you know, makeup and clothing and things that you can take on and off. I think, of course, the zeitgeist will dictate what type of looks are in favor for a given decade or Mm -hmm. century, but I'm a little hesitant about trend following with regard to your face you know it's not as easy to take off your eyes as it is to take off your shirt so we might we might need to think a little bit more about that but um, with regard to the fox eye or cat eye trend in particular, I mean, an almond-shaped eye is a classically beautiful shape. It's, you know, it's something that can be very beautiful on many different types of faces. When we're talking about an almond-shaped eye in plastic surgical terms, we're talking about the cant, C-A-N-T, or the directionality of the tilt between the medial canthus and the lateral canthus of the eye. So by making some... By the adju- way, guys,
1: she's pointing to her inner eye corner and outer eye corner when she's- <laughs>
2: That that? <laughs> yes, I'm a hand talker. Um, so we're basically thinking about the slope that the eye is on right. and how angled that can be by adjusting the position of the lateral canthus, which, you know, I'm pointing to the corner of my eye right now. That's something that you can adjust. So that can be done surgically with um, a canthopexy, which is part of an eyelid surgery, or it can be done non-surgically with suture suspension lifting, which is kind of the modern generation of thread lift lifting. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the starlets that you're seeing, you know, I can't talk about anyone in particular Mm -hmm. um, because some of them I take care of as patients, but suture suspension lifting is a technique that can be used to change the shape and directionality of the tilt of the eye.
1: Mm -hmm. Great. And those thread lifts, like they've gotten a bad rap in the past, but they definitely have seemed to have made a comeback. What are some of the potential Downsides that were happening, and what kind of like improvements have been made, or how do you know how do you do it in your own practice?
2: Totally, and I think that that's a topic in and of itself. We could have a whole other episode about that, (laughs) it's such an involved topic, but I don't want to bore you so briefly. I will say that surgery is the gold standard for any procedure that involves lifting of any part of your face. And that remains true. But thread lifting or suture suspension lifting is an intermediate technique that's partway between injectables and surgery. So if you want something more than what injectables are giving you, but you're not quite ready for surgery, then that's where suture suspension lifting can come into play. Now, the old school thread lifts were very super problematic. And the reason for that was they were very weak. So the way those threads were fashioned was by taking a surgical suture and carving out um, little indentations in it to create rasps in the suture. And that resulted in a very weak stitch. So those had to be placed superficially because they were so weak. And that then caused a bunch of complications like extrusion or poking out through the skin or asymmetry or rippling, contour abnormality, They didn't look good and they didn't last very long. The newest generation of suture suspension um, lifts is made differently. So instead of taking a stitch and carving out indents in it, it's a custom molded barbed suture, which means that each stitch can support two and a half pounds of pressure. So that means that we can place them in the deep plane of the face. And that's the plane where I do a facelift surgery. So they can really lift a lot more that allows them to be longer lasting. And then that avoids problems like, is the stitch visible? Is it puffing? Is it puckering? Does it look weird? So, you know, I could talk about that for a day as you can imagine, (laughs) but I'll spare you. Uh, But that's like the basic idea that it's still not the end all and be all. It's definitely an intermediate technique. Surgery is still the best. But it's now a very viable, safe, beautiful option if you want a result that lasts one or two years.
1: Okay. And you can just do upper, right? Not a full lift. Totally. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It's very possible to just lift the mid face, just lift the eyebrow. You know, we're focusing on the eyes today. So procedures Mm -hmm. around the eyes are very popular. And I kind of mentioned that that's what a lot of celebrities are doing to change Mm -hmm. the cant Mm -hmm.
0: of their eye. Right. And how much would something like that cost, like ballpark?
2: I think it depends a lot on the expertise level of the provider, the amount and type of materials being used, where you are geographically in the country and what your own anatomy looks like. So, you know, the range varies tremendously, but, you know, I think it can be several thousand dollars um, depending on what you're going for.
0: Right, and downtime with that, you're just walking out. You're good. Yeah,
2: downtime is um, you're pretty good. No exercise for two days. Okay. Oh, but you look good.
1: but you look good. That's that's what counts. Um, and then I feel like to me, I get I get scared. Like I get I'm one of those people who gets a bit you know woozy when it comes to this stuff. So real talk, like what does it feel like? Are you going? Are are you getting an anesthetic? Are people like passing out? What do what can someone expect? If Are we talking lips. about surgery or the sutures? The thread, suture thread lift, okay. just an upper thread lift.
2: So for a suture suspension lifting of the upper face, you can expect a little numbing medicine, which is lidocaine or novocaine, like at the dentist's office. So it feels like a bee sting for about 15 seconds, and then after that, you'll be aware of movement and pressure, but it's not going to be extremely uncomfortable. Okay. The whole entire procedure takes 20 or 30 minutes, so it's not super long. People tolerate it really well. I have a zillion videos of it on my um, practice Instagram page if people want to see what it looks like. But the actual experience of the patients is that they're very comfortable.
1: Is there anyone who's not a good candidate for this?
2: Yes. If you have, it's kind of going back to what we were talking about in the beginning of this Mm -hmm. episode. But if you have a significant concern and namely a concern that's related to a significant excess of tissue or puffiness of fat pads, then Mm -hmm. surgery is going to be a much better option for you. The other thing I would say is that you know, surgery can create a more durable and precision level result. So if I'm taking care of someone who has a slight degree of asymmetry or a slight degree of difference in the laterality from the left to the right of the face, then surgery is often going to be a more powerful option.
0: We're talking all about eyes in today's episode. And I personally still think the number one thing you can do to look as fresh as possible when you wake up is to get a solid straight hours of shut eye. And that's why I'm excited to tell you about this week's show partner, Bolin Branch, who can help you get your best beauty sleep yet. So and Branch make the softest and the most comfy sheets because they're made from certified organic cotton. I personally tried out this signature hemmed sheet set. And what impressed me is, yes, as soon as you unbox them, they're really soft, but they seem to get softer and softer with each and every wash, which I think speaks a lot to their quality. And I love that they're thinking responsibly as a company, everything from fair wages and sustainability to farming. They use third-party verification to ensure their raw materials meet the international standards for organic farming. And that means 100% certified fair trade linens. And because and Branch sells directly to consumers, we get to pay fair prices with sheets starting at just $160. And they're meant to be comparable to sheet sets that are $1,000. Plus, they offer a 30-night risk-free trial with free shipping and returns in the USA. And here's the best part. They have a special offer just for our Breaking Beauty fam. Right now, you can get $50 off any sheet set at bowlandbranch.com with promo code BEAUTY. That's spelled B-O-L-L and branch.com promo code beauty for $50 off. One more time, that's bowlandbranch.com and use our promo code beauty for $50 off. Restrictions may apply. See com for details. We'll link to that offer in our show notes and on our blog. Now back to the show.
2: Hey guys, I'm Whitney Port and this is With Wit. A lot of you may know me from reality TV and the reality is a lot's happened since the hills. With Wit is dedicated to having real, raw, and occasionally ridiculous conversations with the people who have had a profound impact on me. Because on With Wit, very little is off limits. Subscribe so you don't miss any of the amazing conversations to come. New episodes of With Wit are available every Tuesday on all
0: platforms. So, we're going to move on to our next topic, which is. Hooded or sagging eyelids. I feel like a lot of people can relate to that. They just see, like, I know for myself, as I age, I'm not going to wrinkle. I'm just going to sag. Like, I've, <laughs> we've got some sag sisters out there. I'm quite sure. But Carlene, you had a specific question, right?
1: Yeah. Well, I, you know, I was born with uh, hooded eyes, so this is this is my category, and that that was fine for most of my life. But that's just my natural eye shape and my genetics. But as I age and now that I'm in my forties, you know, I can start to look naturally sad or, you know, naturally tired, which isn't so great. So what's the go-to for this? Is it still, I'm going to butcher this name, but is it still blepharoplasty or is that the go-to or?
2: Yeah. And you said it perfectly. Yes. So, (laughs) you know, hooding of the eyelids is one of the most common concerns. And I would say that's the number one concern across the population when it comes to aging in the periorbital area. And when you develop a little bit of hooding or excess skin in the upper lids, it can be annoying because it impinges on your eyelash margin. So it messes up your makeup. It can also make you feel heavy, like you're struggling to keep your eyes open. And I think what you were alluding to, third of all, it can make you feel like you look sad or tired when you actually feel happy and alert. And so You know, what I do as a plastic surgeon is not just about beauty. It's really also about confidence and making sure that your outer exterior appearance matches how you feel on the inside. So for this area, there's not a good non-surgical alternative. And blepharoplasty or upper eyelid surgery is the go-to gold standard. And mm-hmm. in this surgery, it's a short surgical procedure. It takes about 30 minutes. We make a tiny hidden incision on the naturally occurring upper lid crease and um, remove a little sliver or crescent of tissue. In someone who has asymmetry, we may remove a different amount on each side. In someone like you who was born with a little bit of a more bedroom eyes, deep set eyes kind of look, you know, I'll look at youthful photos of patients and compare their aging over time and really come up with a custom crafted bespoke outcome for them so that we're not making them look too, too different. And I think that's something that we've sometimes seen in those somewhat mean-spirited headlines about celebrities who did too much or whatever. Mm -hmm. But the eye area is important. So in blepharoplasty surgery, another way we can make it beautiful is by using a zip stitch, which is a really pretty elegant technique where we can hide the suture or stitch in the incision line so you don't get railroad track marks or obvious signs of surgery. And then those stitches come out after a week Patients look restaurant ready at two weeks and ready for anything at three to four weeks. Not that anyone's going to a restaurant anymore, but you know, like whatever the modern equivalent of that is, you're Zoom ready by one or two weeks and ready for anything at three or four weeks.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting. And when would you choose if you do have a bit of that hooding or sagging In your opinion, when would you choose like a brow lift versus an eye lift? Is it two totally different things? Because I know a lot of people with like Botox, for instance, you put it like above your brows to give you that lift. So what's what's such a good
2: question? Oh my god, this is like we're like in in my happy zone talking about this. I love this stuff. It's so esoteric. And sometimes I have these moments where I'm like, do I spend my life talking about one millimeter in eyebrow
1: position?
2: What's going on? But but yes, I do. So the eyebrows are different, and the eyebrows and forehead are one anatomic unit the eyes and eyelids are a different anatomic unit. And so when you're thinking about your eyebrows, the ideal, and I say ideal as a caveat because, you know, beauty takes many forms, but In terms of an anatomic standpoint, like the classic quote unquote ideal eyebrow position for a female is about one centimeter above the orbital rim. So if you press on your eyebrow right now and kind of roll your finger around and figure out Mm -hmm. where your bone is, Mm -hmm. you want that brow to be about a centimeter above your orbital rim in order to give you enough space and Mm -hmm. um, eyebrow movement and tissue integrity to not contribute to your hooding. And then for a male, the ideal brow position is right on the orbital rim. So if your brow is low, then you think about doing a surgical brow lift to raise the brow position up. If you have hooding of the lids, it's a great idea to combine a surgical brow lift with an upper lid blepharoplasty for the best possible aesthetic outcome. Now, Mm -hmm. I will say that a lot, a lot of people feel good about the idea of a brow lift and bad about the idea of eyelid surgery. And a lot of patients will ask me, okay, can't you just lift my brow up? I know I have hooding, but just when I go like this in the mirror and pull up, it looks good. So just make it stay like that. It doesn't work like that. You know, you probably remember in the eighties and nineties, like when I was growing up, I remember seeing all of these surprised shiny faced people. (laughs) Um, so all the lady, all the park Avenue ladies who had the really high eyebrows and very surprised eyes, you know, that's an example of an old school approach where there was an over reliance on lifting Mm -hmm. the brow instead of treating each feature individually. So I think it can look very dysmorphic and unnatural
0: to do that.
1: Okay. That's a great answer
0: and the blepharoplasty I know you can't give specifics but are we talking maybe like $10,000 and up? Yeah, I
2: mean I think definitely in that range for a board certified plastic surgeon. Right. And I think that's definitely the the correct category of person to see for this type of operation.
0: Right. Okay. okay. So we're going to talk now about under eye bags. And I personally think this is like the most pesky thing. Like I have a couple of girlfriends right now and they're like, oh my God, I look like I haven't slept at all in 2020. Like I feel so bad for them because it's so hard. You can't just conceal it away, you know? So what can be done for under eye bags? And, you know, there's oftentimes it comes with that puffiness too. So what's your go-to? Okay.
2: So I think about the under eye area as a ladder and you want to be on the lowest rung possible to be happy. And, you know, if you're beginning to see a little bit of concern in the under eye area, you can definitely start with a strong peptide eye cream. Peptides are very nourishing for the tissues in the periorbita. And that's kind of like If you think of your skin as a fabric, that's kind of like increasing the thread count of the fabric, where an eye cream is not gonna solve all your problems, but it can give you more turgor of your tissues. So start there. If you're feeling like you're still bothered by under eye bags, then we start going into the category of injectables. And tear trough augmentation is a technique where we can layer filler in multiple different tissue planes to create a smoothness of the under eye area. And that's something that looks really nice because it makes the lid cheek junction smooth. And then you get rid of that feeling of extreme dark hollows under your eyes Mm -hmm. that you get with overhead light. Botox can also be in this category for smoothing some of the wrinkles and helping with under eye bags. After that, you move on to the next rung of the ladder, which is resurfacing stuff. And that's lasers. And that's more of a combination of improving the thread count of the tissue, but also, you know, quote unquote thread count, but but also improving the textural issues. And then finally, the best answer for puffiness or bags under the eyes is lower eyelid blepharoplasty surgery. And this is confusing for people because in doctor world, you don't just have eyelids like where you put eyeshadow on the bottom of your eyes underneath your eyes is also called your eyelid. So I know it seems like we just talked about blepharoplasty, but it's a different (laughs) operation underneath the eye. So with that surgery, I'll actually make a tiny hidden incision inside the pink part of the eye and remove the puffy fat pockets that are causing bags. And then we can also make another incision hidden underneath the eyelash margin to take away extra skin and make it smooth. And then third of all, we can do something called autologous fat grafting, where we borrow some fat from your lower abdomen or inner thighs or any place that has a little extra fat and sterilely prepare it and then smooth it in the under eye area as part of your surgery. And that's kind of like spreading melted butter on a bagel. So it goes in every nook and cranny and it gives you a nice, smooth, soft
0: appearance. Amazing. And is that also like a half an hour to do? (laughs) so (laughs) yeah all that in 30 minutes no and that's about
2: lower eyelid blepharoplasty is about 40 to 45
0: minutes oh my god still so I'm glad I'm sitting down I don't know if anyone out there listening is also queasy but as soon as you said pink part of the eye I almost I was like okay I'm getting ready
1: now Dr. Devgan is that what you call the sandwich technique doing the
0: The the tear trough filler
2: yeah um So the sandwich technique is basically how I do tear trough augmentation. Um, And it's a technique that I developed to layer filler in a few different tissue planes, kind of like a Subway sandwich, like the cheese and the lettuce and the, you know, meat um, in order to create a smoothness, because you may notice the under eye is an area where a filler goes wrong. It goes very, very wrong. And you can see people who look very weird because they have too much filler there. And that's mm. typically because it's not been camouflaged in the tissues well.
0: Oh,
1: interesting.
0: Yeah. I've heard that before from different people who have had fillers and they say the downside, if they get a little bit too much or the wrong application of it, it can honestly make your eye look way smaller. Mm.
2: Yeah. And I think that's why Out of everything that we're talking about, I think the most important thing to think about is aesthetic judgment, because you have to understand what a given technique is capable of and not capable of. You know, I'm a plastic surgeon and being in the operating room is my favorite thing, but I devote a significant portion of my practice to non-surgical techniques. And I do that myself because not only do I think it helps make me better in both worlds, but I also think that I like the idea of being fully vertically integrated. So when I meet a patient, it's not just telling them like, oh, you need to have surgery because that's the best. It's getting to know them as a person and offering them a bespoke and customized answer. So, you know, I don't think that surgery and injectables are at war with each other. And that's Mm -hmm. the dogma that when I was growing up as a plastic surgeon, I was taught that like, you know, injectables are stupid. We're surgeons. But I totally disagree with that. I think that there are many different tools in your toolbox. They're each appropriate in different situations, depending on. The person, their goals, their downtime, their budget, what they want, their vision for their own face, you know, and I think part of modern beauty in plastic surgery is that we need to stop telling people the recipe for how to be beautiful, but start allowing people to be their own kind of beautiful on their own terms, whatever that means to them, whether it's like never, ever seeing a plastic surgeon or, you know, preserving some wrinkles or doing a big procedure.
0: Right. Mm -hmm. And for the lower blepharoplasty, is that, that sounds a lot more involved. Is it then, would someone expect more downtime from something like that?
2: It's still the same amount of downtime. So one to two weeks till you're zoom ready.
0: Okay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And and the cost would be in that same kind of ballpark? In the
2: same range. I mean, generally speaking, a lower eyelid surgery is more complex. And so pricing for that can be much, more significantly different across patients because there are many associated techniques that can sometimes need to be used like autologous fat grafting or canthopexy or canthoplasty like we were talking about before. Mm
1: -hmm. And when you were talking about that fat transfer to fill Mm -hmm. the hollows, is that where you were saying like the fillers there, you just can't put that much filler in. You have to go to this next level. Is that it?
2: Well, it's not so much... a a question of volume. It's more a question of the benefit that you can get from a technique. So some -hmm. of the benefits of autologous fat transfer are first of all, some portion of the fat that's transferred will last forever, which is appealing because you don't have to be on the hedonic Mm -hmm. treadmill of like getting your filler and then getting diminishingly, Mm -hmm. diminishingly less satisfaction. And then The second advantage is that when you're doing an autologous fat transfer, you're also transferring the stem cells from the fat tissue to this area. So you can get a paradoxical improvement in how the skin looks just in virtue of doing something that's below the skin. And I think that's really interesting because kind of the black box in plastic surgery is how do you get the cells to be like they used to be? We can change them around, but you know, in plastic surgery, it's like renovating a house or remodeling a building, but using all the same bricks from the old building. And right. we want to figure out how do we get the, the old bricks to look like new bricks again.
1: Right. right. It's it's tall order. Analogy.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Very tall order. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but PRP and fat transfer and kind of some things that we do in the realm of, you know, growth factors, stem cells can be interesting.
1: now a pause to hat tip one of today's show partners, Sakara. I swear November has just flown by, yet here we are, and I want to wish all of our American listeners a very happy Thanksgiving this season. We have much to be thankful for this year. Yes, we actually do. Jill and I have been able to continue to bring you our show every single week thanks to the miracle of technology, and thanks to the miracle of Saqqara, you don't have to sacrifice taste to help meet your health goals, especially during the holidays. When I know I'm going to be indulging in all the rich foods, a little bubbly, and a late night or two when such an occasion arises. Hell yeah, we deserve it. And when it's time to reset their Saqqara. They're a nutrition company that focuses on overall wellness, starting with what you eat. The menu of ready-to-eat, chef-crafted breakfasts, lunches, and dinners are delivered fresh anywhere in the U.S. Everything is plant-based and designed to help balance digestion, regulate cravings, and get skin glowing. And their menu changes weekly, so you'll never get bored. This week, they're serving up healing baked veggie moussaka with roasted eggplant, cashew bechamel, and slow roasted tomato sauce. Yum. Along with the meal delivery programs, they also offer wellness products like their best-selling metabolism super powder and nutrient-rich supplements. You are not going to want to miss out on this current promotion they have going. For a limited time, Sakara is granting you early access to the only sale of the year with 25% off site wide with code Beauty Early That's 25% off your entire order when you go to sakara.com and enter code Beauty Early Access at checkout. We'll link to this offer on our blog and in our show notes. Enter Beauty Early Access at checkout for 25% off your entire order. That's sakara, S A K A R A.com. And now back to the podcast.
0: And what about just straight up if you're bothered just by wrinkling around the eye or like really deep crow's feet or, you know, you feel like the rest of your face is relatively youthful. Like, what would you recommend in that case? Some combination of the above. Like hey. if, if you don't have too much
2: excess of skin and it's just deep creases, then you can probably be in the injectables and laser right. category. But when mm-hmm. you start having pinchable excess, so like if you can take your tissue and pinch a little, stuff you don't want in your hand, Mm -hmm. then that probably means you are a candidate for surgery if you'd like to be.
0: Yeah. My friend just did that the other day at the dinner table and I was like, don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) You're making it worse. Like she's like, look at this. I'm like, okay, okay. That's not helping. Don't do that.
1: (laughs) We kind of touched on this before, but I, I've been truly as a beauty journalist, who's been doing this for like 15 years or however long, I think plastic surgery has honestly come so far because there was definitely a time in my career where I wanted to write a story and show pictures of just that, like you said, like the Park Avenue face. It was so identifiable and people were just starting to look like clones and it didn't look realistic and it was freaking out husbands everywhere. And now it just seems like even in the past five years, it's become so much more about a natural look and the work is really good. Is that about a mindset that's changed with education or just better procedures or what do you chalk it up to?
2: I think it's a lot of different things. First of all, I think the zeitgeist and the spirit of the times really play a role in that. And I think we're in a little bit of a more serious and restrained time. You know, Mm -hmm. COVID-19 has rocked our worlds. And even before that, people were becoming a little bit more aware of problems happening in society. And I think that makes people feel a little bit more restrained in terms of, you know, maybe we don't need super exaggerated features. Mm -hmm. Um, Second, I think that in plastic surgery as a field, there's been a ton of maturation, you know, think of the first cell phone you had 20 years ago. It looks nothing like your, you know, brand new iPhone in your hand right now. And that same level of technological development has occurred in my field also. So Mm -hmm. with minimally invasive techniques, injectables, and also with refinements and nuances in surgery. You know, when Mm -hmm. I was in training, a breast augmentation surgery could routinely take five hours. And that was considered normal by some of the top people, top plastic surgeons in New York city. And in my practice now, a breast augmentation, like a beautiful, perfect, seamless operation will take 30 minutes. And just, you know, editing that down, it's almost like how human beings broke the four minute mile record. And we didn't think that was something that was possible, but if you think that it's possible, then things can happen. And then I think third of all, there was an emphasis And there's always an emphasis when something comes onto the market. Um, There's an emphasis in figuring out how much can we do with this Mm -hmm. instead of how beautiful can we make this? So with Botox, it was like, how smooth like a lake can we make your forehead? It was not like, how do we use this in a restrained manner to give you natural movement, but without obvious wrinkles. And that's more the conversation that we're having today. So it's multifactorial. And then honestly, I think that multiculturalism and the rise of the Internet and social media have also allowed us to see many different kinds of people and be exposed to many more types of beauty. You know, when I was growing up in LA in the 80s and 90s, I think every single magazine I saw was the cover of like a classic Hitchcock blonde. And that was literally all I saw. And now, for the first time in my lifetime, you know, you can be 50 years old, you can be from any country, you can have any kind of skin color, you can have any kind of body type, and you can still be considered beautiful. And so, being aware that, you know, the world looks like a lot of different things has also normalized our ability to say that we want to look natural and we want to look like something that can occur in nature.
0: Mm -hmm. And I also just think like social media in general, like the peak behind the procedures, you have like almost 400,000 followers on Instagram and you can see, like like you said, your before and afters, which would normally be a barrier before, right? Like you would have to make an appointment, go into your office, get the book, look at all the things. And now it's like, if I'm curious, I'll just look at your work. I'll look at a surgeon in LA's work. It's all out there to see. And you can get a gist of like what it would be like.
2: I think that's so important. And I think that... And um, you know, when I was starting my practice in 2013 in New York City, one of my mentors asked me, like, so what's your thing gonna be? Like, how are you gonna start your like what what what's your what's your hook? What's your gimmick? And I was like, I'm not gonna have a gimmick. I'm just gonna do a meticulous job with one person at a time. Like totally meticulous. And then, you know putting your work into the world allows people to see what you do. And the internet is just a magnifying glass. So Instagram, yeah, $400,000 is a lot or whatever the number is, but it's just a magnifier of who you are in real life, just like that times 400,000 or whatever. And so it, it allows people to see the stuff that used to be taboo and that used to be hidden in these like hushed hallways and curtains in your doctor's exam room. Now you can not only see what celebrities are doing, but you can see what your friends are doing. There's much less stigma associated with plastic surgery. So people feel comfortable sharing stuff. And I think there's almost an empowerment to it where people are sometimes feeling like, you know, you can't tell me what the beauty standard is and then police how to get to that beauty standard. Like, leave me alone and this is what I'm doing. And if I want to get Botox, it doesn't mean that I'm not smart. Mm -hmm. And so you know, people are thinking about things differently.
1: Are there any popular eye procedures out there that you think people should be cautious of?
2: Yes, I have heard of several trends that I think are not a good idea. One of them is the injection of PRP with a syringe under the eye. So PRP is a great product, and I love PRP in the form of infusion microneedling, but I think there's no data to support the use of PRP as an injection. And there have been cases of really bad things happening, including blindness and tissue necrosis when people are injecting that. Number two, I've been reading about, especially in the UK and in London, um, I haven't heard about it in the United States, but I've been reading about pigment tattooing in the under eye area. And I've seen some patients who've had it done. And the idea is that you tattoo basically a beige color, skin color type of you know, pigment where circles are dark in order to blend them. And all the examples that I've seen in real life don't look very good. Um, And I think that when you're doing something as permanent as a tattoo on your face, you should really think twice and make sure that that's something you definitely want. And then I think the third thing is a little bit more broad, which is that weirdly, interestingly, there are very few rules and regulations in this field globally. And let me just emphasize to whoever is listening that because there are so few rules, there are a lot of people doing a lot of things that maybe they shouldn't be doing. And the tissues around the eyes in particular are some of the most delicate and anatomically complex on the body. And I personally feel comforted by having the three-dimensional anatomic knowledge of seeing them in the operating room and then also in the procedure room. But You know, procedures around the eyes, if they go wrong, can have devastating consequences, not only tissue necrosis or permanent disfigurement, but also there are many instances of permanent blindness. And those are typically in the hands of people who are not properly trained, who are technically legally allowed to do something, but maybe they don't have the chops or the anatomic expertise. You know, I I would never dream of like trying to do somebody's makeup or like fashion styling, because even though I like those things, I don't have enough expertise Mm -hmm. to put myself into those categories. And I feel the same way about plastic surgery. It's, it's a field that I've trained for 20 years to be able to do. And it's crazy to me that there are people who have a training program of, you know, a half a day, and then they're doing the same thing.
1: Yeah. And I just need to ask, because we got a question about plasma pens under the eyes. Is that the same thing as the PRP injections you're talking about?
2: No, it's not. But I'll put plasma pen on the list of things that I think is not a good idea. Um, So plasma pens basically use a little form of plasma electrocautery to create little dot like tissue burns under the eyes. And the idea is, you know, does that cause the skin to contract and look smoother? I'll tell you that that's going to create a ton of scarring and tissue destruction and pigment irregularity. And that's the reason why the long-term before and after for that procedure is very elusive. It's like, mm. you know, hmm. it's like Bigfoot. You cannot find it in a picture.
0: Wow.
1: Mm. Okay. Yeah. Sometimes it's what you don't see that you have to be wary of. That's all fantastic advice. And I, I want to ask you about finding and avoiding those people who don't have the chops and and what's the best way to find somebody who is trustworthy for our listeners out there?
2: Well, I mean, I think the good news is that medical pathways for training are very old school and traditional, and you have to, you know, go through a lot of rigorous screens to. Become a board certified plastic surgeon, including written and oral exams, ethical standards, maintenance of certification, and all of that. So I think that's a good place to start. But once you have a board certified plastic surgeon, you know, how do you find the person who's right for you? Well, I think you want to, first of all, look at a lot of images, not just one image but a lot of images of the things that you're interested in. Second of all, I think it's important to understand that person's background and training because there are a lot of pathways to get to a certain point and it's your face. You want to make a good decision. And then third, you want to make sure that your aesthetic vision jives with someone else's. You know, there's no right and wrong when it comes to what looks beautiful, that's still in the eye of the beholder. But you want to find a plastic surgeon who shares a vision that you like, where you think what they do is looking good, and you'd be happy if you were in one of those before and after photos. And, you know, I I almost think of it like commissioning an artist to make a beautiful painting for you, where it's a collaborative relationship You have to know the artist's work. You have to like the artist. You have to have seen a bunch of examples. And then it has to be someone that you can have a nice relationship with where it is a collaboration and we're really working together on a shared project. You like that cherry bomb.